Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Continuing our series on Genesis with Dr. Neufeld, we'll continue to study what happened when Adam and Eve fell into sin. So join me as we now look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, with a message on why nakedness produces shame. I wonder if you've ever gone for a hike in the woods and come upon a bear who has a backpack over his shoulders, or a deer sporting a fine pair of cargo pants and excellent hiking boots. Now, of course you haven't, but just putting things that way will help you see where I'm going. We are unique in the animal world, and one of the ways we're unique is that we are uniquely vulnerable. Our bodies are so constructed that they cannot survive on their own. We need to make fires and construct shelters and cover up our vulnerability and invent stuff just so that we'll survive. In that fashion, we're unique. Nakedness, even though much is made of it in the pornographic industry, actually exposes our lack or our inability to survive without help. Well, I'm going to come back to that, but let's get back to our retelling of the account of how the world became an evil place. And by that, I don't mean that God isn't here anymore or that there is no presence of grace. See, Jesus taught that God causes it to rain and the sun to shine on both the just and on the unjust. God also actively restrains wickedness in the present hour. Furthermore, we have never stopped being in the image of God. However, sin and evil is altogether pervasive and has not left anything in this world or in human beings untouched. The image has become distorted. The human experience has now been twisted at every level. Genesis 3 is a day that will live in infamy, for it tells the story of when and how the world became evil. Well, let's read our text, Genesis 3, 1-7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now we noted yesterday that this text introduced a stunning event, an event that the earth had never witnessed heretofore. God said, the day you eat of this, you will die. And the serpent said, no, you will not die. For the first time ever in a world where everything was as it should be, where truth and certainty dominated the human experience, we hear a contradiction. God declares and Satan responds. It's not true. Indeed, God is deceiving you. He is lying. And for Eve, the greatest challenge before her is not an inner sense of temptation, but to decide, whom shall I believe? You know, it's for this reason that most Bible teachers state that unbelief is the beginning of all sin, or all sin arises out of unbelief. There are no exceptions to this rule. Unbelief is the heart of all human sin. Let's see if we can use some examples. The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. But a man might look at his own wife and let's say she has just said goodbye to him at the door as he's left for work. And she's standing there in her housecoat. 
clutching her crying nine-month-old who has just puked all over the floor. The house is a mess, and they've had a fight the night before. And he goes to work and carries out his business with an attractive and young and, and bright and smartly dressed, dedicated and respected female work colleague. The relationship is nothing like the mess he has just left at home. And yet this is a battle of faith. The scripture says that his wife is his helper exactly suitable to him. But how can that be? In fact, he's fighting with so much more than lust. He's fighting the battle of faith. Will he believe that God, in great love, provided for him the helpmate he did, or will he push her out of his mind? And so he makes up his mind. He can't believe that. In effect, he's charging God with lies and deception, even though he might not be verbalizing that. He disbelieves, and that's why he sins. Or take the 10th commandment, which says, you shall not covet. You shall not envy anything that belongs to someone else. But the person you know has a nice house and a nice car and has a greatly respected job and has unbelievable perks and is gone two months every winter in some place in the Sun Belt. And bitterness enters your heart and you say, this world is not fair. I'm going to get what's coming to me no matter what. But God's word says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But we say, I can't believe that. See, my situation stinks. God can't use this situation to eternally benefit me. And therefore, God's a liar. So we disbelieve and so we sin. You know, every single sin we commit is traced back to a failure to believe in the promises of God. That's the root system of sin. That's the pipeline through which sin is delivered. Unbelief calls God a liar and calls Satan a being of truth. And that's the battle the woman had. Whom shall I believe? And can you identify with her? You know, if you're honest, yeah, you can. But now comes the second attribute of sin. It's called pride. The serpent is not done with Eve. He's comfortable in contradicting God, and Eve is stunned. Who knows whom she will believe? But now comes the kicker. Satan tells Eve that if she rebels against God, that she will herself become like God. No longer must she bend the knee to God. She can now be a God, making her own decisions, exercising her own authority. She can declare the greatness of her own name. She can rule this world and never give an account to God. She need only to give an account to herself. She can gain wisdom without ever learning from God. Her fame, her wisdom, her greatness will become renowned. Satan says, for God knows that you will obtain a knowledge of good and evil. And after all, hasn't God put unnatural restrictions on you by forbidding that which would allow you to become what he is? And now we see that Eve has found a motivation for not believing God. And that's the point. It is entirely irrational to call God a liar, to fail to believe him when he speaks. After all, why would God need to deceive us? He created us, and he can kill us if he so desires. He feeds us and provides for us, and he can withdraw that if he wills. All of life teaches us that God is gracious and that God gets no advantage by deceiving us. But pride is insidious. It lies to us and tells us we can be God. Indeed, all sin comes not only from unbelief, but also comes of our own attempt to be God. Moreover, the driving motivation behind all human actions after the fall is to declare the greatness of our own name. 
whether we build bombs that will destroy all life in a matter of seconds or invent a form of medical technology that will save lives, we do it all to declare that we're great. Countries tell one another that they are the greatest country. Muhammad Ali, the boxer, used to tell people that he was the greatest. We all want to excel. We want people to notice our godlike status. And we have hundreds of inventive ways of proving that we're someone great. And the only way back to God is through faith and humility. You can't get rid of your sin by trying hard. You can only get there by believing in God's promise through the cross and humbling yourself by acknowledging that God is right when he pronounced you a sinner. I wonder if you've ever noticed how much the good news of Jesus attacks the human ego. It declares that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves, that we must simply accept Christ's free gift of salvation on the cross. We must believe and lay aside our pride. At salvation, we are called to do the very opposite of what Eve did that day. So Eve made a decision. She would disbelieve God and she would seek her own greatness. If God limited her freedom, she would regain it. If God kept wisdom from her, she would find it on her own. And this, this is an all-out assault on heaven. It's a declaration of war against God's order in the world. And whenever you or I fail to believe, we do the same. This is unbelief and pride, and this is wickedness beyond every description. It invites God to defend his honor and to destroy us. Yes, because of this, we will surely die. For the earth belongs to God, and the stage is his, and the drama of a world that will sing of the greatness of his plan is his drama. Look again at the first part of verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired. Notice the words all expressing passion. Revulsion of disobeying God gives way to delight in the action. What would have been considered a monstrous act, even a moment before, now becomes delightful. Have you ever wondered about why it is that the further we get away from God, how normal and nice things all appear? What repulses us before now becomes desirable and even virtuous. More when we come back. The fact that God created humans as unique, very different from the animals, is a good reminder to begin with as we look at the theme of nakedness. Also, in this introduction, we're realizing just how evil are the sins of unbelief and pride, shown through the deception of Eve by the serpent. We see how easily it worked its way into the minds of our first parents and continues to affect us today. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld finishes the story as we look at what sin did to our nakedness and how great is our need for redemption. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon His supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. Your generosity allows us to proclaim God's truth. Our families need it. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. 
To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. We left off by noticing that what would have sickened us at one moment can look appealing and pleasing in the next. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said that all that it takes for evil to flourish is a seemingly noble ideology. It is true. A great many people who torture political prisoners for a living do not feel guilty. In fact, they can tell you how wonderful their craft serves the betterment of humanity for their helping root out those who would destroy their country. A group of men can board onto a couple of airliners and hijack them and fly them into the World Trade Center, believing that their callous act of murder is pleasing to God. We can commit adultery, lie, steal, and cheat, and justify it with an ideology of exploration, hedonism, and breaking new boundaries of morality. We can assassinate someone's character and tell ourselves we're being truthful about someone's faults. After all, it's important that the person you malign be known for what they truly are. All acts of evil seem right and justifiable. In fact, we are now being told that the hardest thing for people in our society is to accept about the gospel is that we're sinners. We're not sinners, we say. We are merely acting in our own best interests. What would repulse us if we were righteous is now becoming a justifiable act of delight. And then also, shame gives way to justification. Look at the last half of verse 6. The tree was desired to make one wise. Now, if you wonder what Adam was doing this whole time, well, the last part of verse 6 explains that. It says, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It now becomes clear that he was watching the dialogue with Satan and Eve with a sense of fascination. He said nothing. He provides no leadership. He does not recount the words of his creator. He is forgotten. He is engrossed in this amazing dialogue. And as Eve bites down hard on that first piece of forbidden fruit, her head does not hang down in shame. Rather, she reaches out to Adam and invites him to join her. All will be fine. And he undoubtedly agrees. You know, there's something about evil that loves company. And that's why we love opinion polls. If 75% of people lie to their bosses at work at some time, then everyone's doing it. And if it's common behavior, one widely experienced, surely it cannot be condemned. Now follow me to verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. You know, at this moment, a remarkable thing happens. Adam and Eve gain an awareness they never had before. They suddenly see life and each other from a perspective that would never have occurred to them. Now, they don't become gods, but they do gain a sense of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll look into that more tomorrow, but for now, at the first bite of the fruit, they suddenly discover their nakedness. See, that seems strange to us. How could they not have noticed? And the answer seems to be that their nakedness was a sign of their vulnerability. They are fundamentally different from the rest of creation and are more dependent than the rest of creation. Up till now, it did not matter that they were vulnerable. But now that they no longer rely on God, but are in this vain attempt to become gods in their own right, they see what they are with a clarity that had never presented itself before. They will never survive on their own, and so they immediately set out to make clothing. 
I think this is not a minor point. After all, much of human life is taken up in covering our nakedness, for we are vulnerable. It has been said by one atheist that in the past, when there was a plague in a city, men used to crowd the cathedrals and cry to God for mercy. And today, merely we cover up the manholes and repair the sewers. We may be dealing with death, but our technology is clothing that will cover up our nakedness. We tell ourselves, if the clothing is only sufficient, our nakedness will never be exposed. After all, given enough time, we can create heaven right here on earth. We can banish all disease and all injustice. Let me skip ahead now, all the way to chapter 3, verse 21. There we're told, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, evidently, the clothing that Adam and Eve made was not good enough to hide their nakedness. See, none of our technology ever is. It will go a long way, but in the end, it will fail us. So God, in an act of grace, made them coats of skins. And God is still making coats of skins for us today. See, I believe that modern medicine is a coat of skins. I believe that good government is a coat of skins. I believe that education, when done well, is a coat of skins. I believe that some of our technology is a coat of skins. All of this was given by God. Yes, God knew how vulnerable we have become. And he has opened up doors of discovery. And he has done so as an act of his grace to hide our nakedness. But the problem was not erased. We may indeed find that we live at ease and casually in control as we hurl down the freeway at 100 kilometers an hour and that we seem in control of our world. We have life by the tail, and maybe it really is not a world deeply infested by sin after all. But all it takes is a sniper. See, all it takes is an airplane flying into trade towers. All it takes is the news you have cancer. All it takes is the news that you've been fired. Or the news that your wife is leaving you and suddenly we see that we're naked all over again and we're afraid. And the only solution to sin is the cross of Jesus. The only way back to God is faith and humility. Listen, you are a sinner. You're naked. You will eventually die and you will ultimately fall under the judgment of God unless you receive the ultimate coat of skins, the free gift of forgiveness by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's also why Revelation 3 verse 5 promises, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. That's why the promise of the world to come is not nakedness, but clothing, the kind of clothing that will never leave us vulnerable again. Let's look back to Genesis 3, 6 one more time. When she saw the tree was good for food and delightful to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom. See, the first thing Eve noticed when she was on the brink of sin was how attractive it looked. Sin is beautiful. It's seductive. It's appealing. It's inviting. One of the best feelings you'll ever have is the feeling of sinning. Anger, revenge, abusing power over others are powerful aphrodisiacs. On top of that, the enticement to do evil came not in the form of a red dragon with a pitchfork in his hand, but in the form of a serpent. 
You know, there must have been many serpents, and they must have been common and ordinary. The fact that this serpent speaks may not have troubled Eve, for she lived in a world where God entered every evening to speak with her and her husband, where an angel stood with a flaming sword on the outside of the garden, and where the impact of heaven was everywhere felt. It did not seem to Eve at that moment that she was about to commit unspeakable evil and doom the human race into misery. It only seemed overwhelmingly enticing. Are you surprised that evil doesn't always feel evil? Well, it doesn't. And that, to a large degree, is the success that evil has among us. We desire it. We long for it, even though to fulfill this desire will eventually lead to death. It's so hard to say no to the thing that we so desperately want. But notice that evil is not without its effects. Desire and enjoyment come first, but deep regret and death is what follows. All of creation is affected by the one act of Adam and Eve eating from the tree. Death, disease, pain, the groaning of the entire planet, all of this came about through this one act. If there's anything the scripture teaches us, it is that you never keep one act of sin isolated from the rest of life. Think about the businessman who has the affair. He tells himself this will not affect his wife, his family, his church, his integrity, and his basic humanity. But sin leaks into everything. It is pervasive. And we have become the children of Adam and Eve. And it is that, that this nakedness that is intended to leave us with a realization that we need to be clothed with Christ. Thanks, John. Just one question. In this day of so much sin, how do we insulate ourselves? How do we clothe ourselves from its effects? Well, in fact, we can't. Sin will have its way in us. The only hope that we have is that Christ would do it on our behalf. And so I think all that we can do is to listen to the promises that God has made in the cross, the promises he's made by giving us the Holy Spirit, and believing that he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We must confess we are helpless against sin, but we know a strong champion who will speak on our behalf. That's our hope. So far this week, we've journeyed through an important overview of the fall of humanity on that day in the Garden of Eden. Many things have been covered in our discussion about sin, evil, and its effects. But one thing we can know is that not one of us is immune to the power and the struggles associated with sin that is within us. Without Christ, people indeed are hopelessly lost in their sins, and many with no knowledge of this fact. Have you been impacted by today's teaching? We want you to be blessed and even convicted by these truths that we're hearing from the book of Genesis. I hope that you can listen to this program again tomorrow when Dr. Neufeld will teach us about Paradise Lost. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada ministers God's Word that we might become a people for His glory. Our teaching reaches individuals and congregations of faith, but homes of faith need God's truth as well. Households are the first places we learn to read scripture, say our prayers, and share the works of God. To help your family's spiritual growth, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is releasing an exciting new resource titled, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. 
It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents to help their families grow in their walk with the Lord. Back to the Bible Canada believes these precious times of sharing together spiritually are crucial. So we invite you to request your copy of Four Minutes for Frazzled Families as our free gift to you and your family by visiting backtothebible.ca or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.